This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I can't wait to introduce you to my charming and very knowledgeable guest on today's show. So I'm going to allow myself to be delayed only by these two important pieces of news. One, that's my Londonist Out Loud t-shirt turned up in the post today, and it actually does look cool. To get yours, have a gander at the merchandise section on londonist.com. And secondly, that if you like interesting words being introduced to your ears, you should really be signing up to Audible, our sponsor... Signing up for a free 30-day trial with them means that we get to stay on the air. Plus, you'll get a free audiobook, and it's a really good service. I, for example, enjoy a bit of Adam Curtis, and so I've downloaded with this month's credit The Century of Self, in which, as far as I can tell, Curtis promises to unpack in his inimitable fashion how Freud's theories of id and ego and superego affected the general thinking of the 20th century. I shall do so whilst wearing a t-shirt for my own show. It's the 2nd of May 2015. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front. One of the great joys of exploring London is visiting a place that you know quite well, or you think you know quite well, and just uh, dodging down a side street and seeing what you find. And so it is today. I got off the tube at London Bridge and uh, Tooley Street, I know all too well, with the bloodied actors at that uh, exhibition and all the building works going on on London Bridge Station. And I've come down Bermondsey Street, which it's not really a, a side street at all, it's a decent thoroughfare, but it's somewhere I've not explored in any depth. And what I've found, it, well, two things. Number one, Peter Layton, the grand old man of British glass, who is standing beside me now in uh, Bermondsey Street in what seems to be a village. Hi, Peter. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. We're in Bermondsey Street, which used to be a no-go area, I don't know, let's say ten years ago. We, we moved our studio, London Glass Blowing, here five years ago, and the street has developed enormously since then, and it is the most wonderful location. I love being in this street. It's amazing. And genuinely charming. The sort of speed you're talking about there 
rings alarm bells around gentrification, but uh, this feels very relaxed. It feels like it's always been this way. And there is a great sense of community. We There are lots of shops and there are lots of bars and restaurants and we all know each other and we all wander in and out of each other's premises and help each other out from time to time. I'm standing right opposite the Fashion and Textile Museum. It's an extraordinary building in pink and orange. Uh, it's Zandra Rhodes is, it was the inspiration for this and it was hers until I think it was taken over by, um, by a college, Newham College I think it is. And, uh, and they arrange wonderful exhibitions there. We have another major gallery, one of the largest in Europe, uh, the White Cube at the other end. And then there, there's us, and we're a gallery and studio, so if you wander into our gallery, you can actually see people working. And beside, next door but one is Eames Fine Art, and they are print specialists. So is it accidental that this is a fine arts hub? Um, if anything, it's more of a fine eating hub. It's a restaurant. There's so many good restaurants here. We'd like to see more galleries, actually. But uh, there's so many incredible restaurants, one after another, and we're totally spoilt for choice. In fact, we're standing outside one of the latest editions, which is the B Street Deli, which is straight out of New York, although it's a, a local lad who turned his his flower shop into a deli and he's done it so well and so beautifully and uh, we come here regularly <laughs> uh, and very appetising it looks as well uh, there's a bit of a toss up in my mind at the moment as to whether we carry on with the interview or, or go off for something to eat to be honest I don't blame you <laughs> but when you say us you're referring to a place that produces glass and I've had a I am, I've yeah. had a little bit of a, a, a look around uh, already we're going to be going there in just a moment and there's some really impressive work on and I hope we'll be able to find out a little bit about the history of glass and, and how glass is blown and so forth something about which I know nothing the history of you and, the, and this particular business though I think I've seen that you established in the 70s so, so does that we mean you've been in this area that long? been in South London we started off in Rotherhithe on the, on the banks of the Thames in an old towage works in Rotherhithe Street right by the Mayflower pub and that was a great location we've been incredibly lucky eventually the council decided to realise its assets Southwark that is Took, took back that property and we had to move on. As it turned out, it was a good move from our point of view. These things always are, strangely. And we went to the leather market in um, Western Street, which runs parallel to this, so only five minutes away. And eventually our lease came to an end there for one reason or another, and I was lucky enough to find this location, which is our best to date, and... Um, it will see me out because I'm, I'm getting on. <laughs> I, I don't believe you at all. 78 next birthday. Good grief. I'm still going strong, thank God. Touch wood and all that. Certainly yeah, wouldn't have guessed. Yeah. What sort of change have you seen? It always seems to be an area that's transforming around here. Well, I have seen an enormous changes, obviously. You know, I've watched the Shard. Well, I remember the building that was there before, you know, and I've watched the Shard since it was a big hole in the ground. And it is the most extraordinary building, and I love it. I know a lot of people hate it, but I, enjoy, I really like it. We have a good view of it. Well, it's, it's, my... it's, it's ideal for you, really, isn't it? Lots of glass. Absolutely. And funnily enough, I was about to say that from my previous warehouse, second-floor warehouse studio, I had a marvellous view of the gherkin. 
and uh, I do enjoy these modern buildings one way or another. I've heard with the gherkin that every pane of glass is different and has to be separately uh, provided. I, I believe that is true. I did once have a conversation with the director of the company that did the cladding on that. Yes, and he did confirm that each each pane is, is different. Which would be... A, a headache, that was. Well, a pain in the other sense, yes. Exactly. Let's head up uh, Bermondsey Street a little bit. As we say, we're starting... Oh, we're going, we're going in the opposite direction to start us well, off with. We're going to circle here. round. Yes, absolutely. So here we have Amanda Thompson, who's... Couture. We had two or three of these fashion... I, I suppose being opposite the textile and fashion museums, this is a rather good location for these people. And right next door is a small Italian deli. Uh, then there's the famous Woolpack pub, and opposite that is the garrison. I mean, this is a, truly a gastronomic tour. This is a sweet little place. Tin Lid, this is one of the nicest little uh, children's shops in... I suspect in London it's run by a young French lady whose husband runs that restaurant over there, which is to die for, Cascrout, but you have to book a long, long way ahead. It sounds like a, a tight community. Uh, when you say the Woolpack's famous, what is it famous for? Well, it's just, it's just a very successful pub. It has a vast space out the back. There you go. Which you can... That, that is packed. This, here we're about to pass probably the best tapas bar in London. It's called Jose's. You, it's standing room only. It is small, but normally you can't get a seat in this place. And you have to book, a, you know, you have to get in early. I've never seen it that empty, actually. <laughs> There's a, a little bit of a whiff of shortage going on here. There's raw, raw brick and uh, tables made out of barrels and so forth. Although it's, I guess it's got a little bit of that maritime feeling. Ah, oh, maritime. Yes, I suppose so. I'm sure that a lot of the people who lived in this area uh, were involved with the docklands in some, some shape or form. And that was certainly true of our previous, one of our previous locations when we were in Rotherhigh Street. I mean, that was... That was entirely devoted and our, our property was a towage works that was entirely do- devoted to the, the toing and froing and business of the, of the river and in fact some of my earlier series were inspired by the river even, even, even muck and rubbish and oil floating by were, inspired a series called uh, Flotsam and Jetsam incredibly successful in its time I don't make it anymore well, you've led us with perfect timing, I would say, to the, the point where I should ask a little bit about how you got started. And uh, maybe for those people like me who aren't familiar with glass blowing and the different sides to it, could you give us a bit of a, an overview, first of all? We all have, the, I guess, the idea of somebody blowing down a pipe and a bubble appearing at the end. What do we need to know beyond that? <laughs> Probably rather a lot. No, that's pretty much it. Oh, that's actually. it, OK. You know, you know 2,000-year-old technology. I started out as a... Well, I started out in textiles when I left school, but that, that was up in Yorkshire, up in the rag trade. But um, oh, reclaimed textiles, as we like to talk about them, early, early recycling. But um, uh, my training was as a potter at the Central School of Arts and Crafts, and then I, I went to teach in the USA, uh, ended up at the University of Iowa. And during that year, a gentleman called Tom McLaughlin came to set up a small glass blowing studio and I signed up, although I was one of the lecturers I signed up as a student uh, burnt myself very badly within days 
and thought, well, that's the end of that. You know, I, 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 I really did, but my practice took the back of my hand off. So, and I thought that was the end of my glass blowing career. But it's, a, it's an incredible medium, and it's so seductive. It just takes you over. And it, it took me a while to um, switch from clay, which is also a wonderful medium. And I, I, enjoy, I mean, I, nothing better than getting your hands in, into a squidgy mass of clay. But glass is so quick and so responsive, and such, you need such uh, immediate responses. You need to make decisions... We could uh, walk this way if you like. We're outside the white cube now and it'll be less noisy in a way. It's just, you know, one falls in love with the medium. We give classes and uh, invariable people... We have people say, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. You know, that's a frequent cry and we, um, you know, we love it. We, we, We don't actually think that we make a great deal of money out of running these classes. We do it really to um, get people started, if you like, or get them to have an experience that they wouldn't normally be able to have. The tactile and, and sensuous quality of clay uh, is, is well known. What, yes, what, it, what is I it was, in glassblower? It absolutely is. And as a former potter, you know, I like to think that glass is tactile too. And I, for years, I didn't make, as it were, shiny glass. My... Uh, London glass blowing sort of made its name with iridized glass, a little bit like Tiffany. But so it's a beautifully reflective quality, but it also is beautiful, lovely to touch, a very silky feel to it, and it didn't finger mark. Uh, then I went through a phase, a period, a long period of several years of etching all the glass. So then it was frosted, and it had a matte quality. And, when, and in fact, when I was a potter, I was preferred matte glazes to shiny ones and anyway eventually I've graduated to be making real glass you know and it does it's true it does finger mark if you you know you touch glass with dirty or oily hands but but nevertheless it it is I I mean fondling a piece of glass is almost as good as looking at it and I um, it's something I still enjoy, and I do etch some pieces, and I and other pieces. I'm getting more. I'm working thicker, and so the the glass has a hugely thick cross section, and it's changing and evolving all the time, which is the thing I enjoy about it. So you've you've heated the uh, the, the molten glass, you've blown it, and then is it as it's cooling down that you're you're having to etch it at uh, at speed? Ah, no, the etching takes place once it's already been annealed, and so. So you blow the piece and you're constantly reheating and shaping and forming and the colouring, in our case, takes place at that stage. And of course, so, and then it's put into a kiln to cool and in our case, it takes two days to cool down. Very controlled cooling curve. Otherwise, it would simply shatter. If I left it out in, you know, on a table, it would simply fall apart or, or burst. Um, because it's coming down from ridiculously yes, yes, high temperatures, uh, isn't yes, it? Yes, we work at uh, temperatures of around 1,100 degrees centigrade, or, or thereabouts anyway. That's our working temperature of the glass. And it's cooling all the time as we, as we, um, as we work. So you, ha- you go back to what's called the glory hole, and, and eventually, when the piece is finished, we place it in what's called the leer, or the annealing oven, and it cools there for two days, over two days. And then, once it's cold, you can sandblast it, or you can etch it, or you can cut it with diamond wheels. So there's a lot, a lot you can do when it's cold as well. 
I, I want to see some of this, but I, I also want to see... It looks as though somebody uh, rather important has just driven past us. I wonder who, yes, yes, e- that was... Was it E-H-E-1 or something? Uh, oh, was it really? We're outside the white cube now, uh, which is the most wonderful space, I have to say. You probably need to be a millionaire to buy anything in there. We do get customers occasionally who come down and say, I prefer what I've seen in your gallery. I, perhaps I shouldn't be saying this, I'll probably get blacklisted by Jay Joplin or something <laughs> but um, anyway yes we do often see chauffeur driven cars, it's got this wonderful courtyard and it's amazing watching what goes on here, vast trucks roll in from all parts of the world and huge pieces of, I, I, I saw an anti, Anthony Gormley uh, exhibition in there a year or so ago uh, and he'd absolutely filled one of these huge spaces with, with a single piece uh, it's a mind-blowing experience to get together. I, I love it. We need to get moving. The listener, you'll have detected a bit of wind. Not a good day for recording outside, really. What, what's at the far end of this road is still, it still exists on a Friday morning is the old Bermondsey Mark. If you got there in the middle of the night, you could pick up... Uh, it used to be the only place, I believe, in, in the country where you could buy stolen goods legitimately. And um, you still have to go very early to find a bargain there. You know, people do come from all over the world to Bermondsey Market. It does have this reputation as being somewhere you can find something special. Now, when you say you could do it legitimately, what do you mean? Well, I, 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 I believe, I understand you could do it legally that it was you were, you were allowed for some reason. Some sort of exemption. There was some sort of, as, as I... Maybe, maybe I've got this all wrong, who knows, but I believe there was some sort of exemption. I suppose what we're trying to do, not, not just our gallery, but the galleries who exist in Bermondsey Street, is to try to persuade them that it isn't all about antiques. In, um... So this, this studio glass movement has only been going 50 years, so it's a 2,000-year-old... It's a medium that's been in use for many thousands of years, 2,000 of years is probably about the time when glass blowing as such was discovered there were ways of working with glass that the ancient egyptians had by the way we're we're just passing we're just passing uh, a little vietnamese restaurant which is moving next week or even this week i think we're moving here we are on the 2nd of may and we are all devastated this is our daily almost daily um expedition to Cave House, so uh, I don't know quite where we'll transfer our affections after this. But <laughs> sounds um, like there are a few a few candidates lined up. Yeah, yes, that's true. There are quite a few. Anyway, to go back to glass. Um, so blowing's been going for a couple of thousand years. And you you mentioned just taking a, a blowpipe and working, and that, I mean that that whoever discovered the blowpipe, it's a bit like the Potter's wheel. Whoever actually made that. You know, that was an amazing moment in, in, in cultural history. I think mean, glass, as a, as a material, has made the most amazing contribution to society over, over these years. Um, I mean, I think we take for granted windows and microscopes and TV sets. I mean, just, you just think about it. I mean, where would we be without glass? 
I wanted to ask you, actually, just a cursory glance over the history of glass making seems to suggest that the molecular composition of, of glass, that's something that's evolved and there's been new innovations there to some degree. The equipment itself, has that changed over much? We, we work in the way that people have worked for centuries. Blowing as a technique hasn't evolved that much. We're still using tools that were used or developed in Roman times or or medieval times. It's certainly true that there are thousands of recipes or formulae for glass and different kinds of glass or different types of glass are made for different functions. But even for blowing there are thousands of recipes and it depends on the qualities you want. And we in fact import the glass we're using from Sweden in pelletized form so that it's safe to handle. We, we fill the furnace. Our, our furnace is just basically a brick box with a, a pot inside it into, that we throw the batch into at, at night. And it, um, with luck, it, it's ready to use next morning. Perhaps... Um, just uh, glancing up at s- some of the buildings we're passing on the opposite side of the street there reminds me of my other question, which is uh, when you look at very old buildings, I guess sort of Tudor and pre-Tudor, famously there's that effect of the, the glass being thicker in the panes at the bottom, and I was told years ago that that's because glass is still a liquid, even in uh, solid stop, form. It never stops flowing. Yes, uh, I, I don't know whether that's a myth or, or actual. Really? I mean, I've always thought that that was the case, but I think somebody, I think I did recently read somewhere, or not that recently, I did read a while ago that was uh, some sort of myth i mean it's probably one of the ways that window panes used to be made particularly old window panes was that they were spun out like a platter so they were thicker in the middle and if if you cut squares or rectangles out of a circle like that you often did get thicker areas in parts but it uh, but it glass is a liquid supercooled liquid and it never does it doesn't have a, a molecular structure like other materials. It has a, quite a different, a non-crystalline structure. We're just passing these beautiful, beautiful Dickensian-looking buildings at the moment, bow-fronted. And I, I know this chap never... You ask him about gentrification, or you mentioned it, but, I mean, he has no desire to as it were tart this up because he you know he just likes it as it is and he I probably feels more secure with it looking a bit tatty the way it is but it's so pretty I I love it we're looking at a well this would be in keeping with any uh, high street in a Jane Austen tv adaptation wouldn't it it's a a bow fronted many paned curved window with a a ledge there shop window gorgeous isn't it isn't that lovely and 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 opposite with these incredible, what do you think? These are Victorian. I suppose they are, aren't they? That, that the relief there. Yeah, that relief and and the quality of the the proportions are great on that particular building. That's got a sort of that must be Edwardian or early or late Georgian or something. Even though it's got some certain relief. And the building next door, which is right opposite our door, always makes me think of Magritte because you can actually see through. The sets of windows to um, the sky or the brickwork behind. Yeah, that's a very curious. It's quite effect. extraordinary, isn't it? My favourites, uh, I have to say, are these 
warehouse buildings where we've got those double doors that open out at third storey and fourth storey level. A little bit further up the street, I noticed one or two of them have got the pulley, the, w- pulleys, the yes. winches that would sort of fold out and, and uh, fold over the street. Restored. One, one, with one, there's one, uh, one guy, Russell, I can't remember his surname, owns those buildings and he has restored them beautifully. And it, but inside, they're, they're, they're just as good. They're just as good inside as they are outside. I'm well, really impressed. Here we are. We're, we're, we're back, going to we're head into place. Yes, we've do come in. a glazed, do, a glazed exterior, appropriately enough. Well, we, we put that there. I mean, this was a warehouse, and if you see, and this is our, this is our, um, secu- I mean, this, this is, it will, as you see, it's got a vast delivery door, which <laughs> is, um, and this is pulled, pulled to at night, and we've, We've put this um, glass facade inside so that people could passing by could actually see the work going on at the back of the studio. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah. Well, in we go, and it looks very much like a gallery. One of your colleagues pointed out that it's incredibly difficult to take decent photography in here, because the, which is what I find in any gallery, actually, because the lighting is always very kind to the objects and not very kind to the people or the room itself. What we can see, well, they seem to me to be examples, one or two pieces on each plinth or pedestal from a, a different style of glasswork. Well, there are... A group of us working here, we're about 10 or 12 glassmakers. It is actually my studio. Uh, they help me with my work. As I said, I'm getting on a bit, and some of this work is extremely heavy, many kilos. They also have the facility to do their own work, and that's what's on display here alongside mine. And we're exhibiting next week at the Saatchi Gallery in a wonderful show called Collect. I mean, that would be an interesting thing for people to know about. Collect is probably the best exhibition of art, craft, or craft art in Europe. 
There is a very, very good one in the, U- in the USA, probably the best in the world, called uh, SOFA, Sculptural Objects and Functional Art. And we have exhibited there, I have exhibited there. Uh, but Collect is the British version, and it, it really att- it attracts people, it attracts exhibitors from Japan and from Europe and... Not, I, I don't think it's open to people from the USA, but we get American visitors, thank God. Um, and it's a huge operation for us to show there. And all the people who are in this exhibition here, which we call Gather, it's a kind of fringe version of Collect, are actually showing... You can only show at Collect if you're a gallery. And we're exhibiting there as a gallery, taking all our team plus some other invited artists to, to show that and that is, if I may give the dates that's from the 8th to the 11th of May at the Saatchi Gallery in the King's Road so just a few Great days venue. a few days time there, yes. uh, are any of the pieces that we can see on display here, are they going to be exhibited? Uh, not, not, the, not these actual pieces but pieces in these various series, so in my own case this is a, this is a new series we had an exhibition here about, um, oh, I think, six months ago called Vetro, uh, exploring the influence of Venetian glass. Um, the Venetians have been glass-making for centuries, and very often we do get... I mean, we get people in, walking in, and their jaws drop. And they say, my God, I didn't know you could do this sort of thing with glass. How extraordinary. And then we get others who said, ah, Murano, this is, you know... So we thought, well, if we can't beat them, we'll join them. And so we've done this homage to Venetian glass or Italian glass making. And we all came up with new series which had an Italian feel. You know, there wasn't any intention to copy in any way, but we all were inspired by this theme. And... um, I came up with, this is one of the designs I came up with. Let me give a bit of description for the the listener. So what we're looking at are two objects here, they're similar but uh, individual, and there are three phases, to my eye, to the piece. The the outside, the thing containing it all, is a fairly free-form, clear glass blob. And it's, it's elegant, it's tall, it's, it's slender. Uh, within it, there's a very detailed sort of netting effect. It's like a honeycomb of sorts, slightly disordered. It's like a net that's been thrown underwater. And then on the innermost level, well, it's like the beating heart of the thing, bright red and uh, contained by the other two elements. It's, it feels like an organ. Uh, well, that's very nice. I did actually do a series of organs and a series of hearts, and it may well be that this is um, this does bear some. Re- I hadn't thought of that. This does bear some relation to those pieces. Uh, I call it Burano, which is um, a neighbouring island to to Murano, and it is famous for producing lace. I mean, if we go over to the other side, there's a, a black version. Uh, made more recently than those pieces. And he- here, this, in this case, it's similar to what you were describing. Interiors, a uh, black form. Then there's white lace work, a, a, a layer of that. And finally, of course, there's clear glass on the outside, quite thick. And these pieces are asymmetric. But the, the point of calling them... So it's a pastiche, in a way, on 
you know, Venetian glass making. And the fact that I've called it Burano is is a play on this idea of of lace making. That that's called Harlequin, and that that was another of the Italian inspired series that I came up with. We're gesturing here at something much more lively in uh, colours which don't make a secret of themselves and there's stripes and swirls. Well, relating to the Venetian carnival, you know, the idea of wearing masks and bright colours, you know, I, I, again, I, I've never seen a piece in Italy like that and I do go from time to time, but I just felt it had some atmosphere that might relate in some way to Italian glass. What I notice about all of the pieces here, and each one is a very different style uh, from, the, from its neighbour, but each of them is like a magic trick in a way. And uh, as I said, I'm undereducated when it comes to glass blowing, but even using uh, sort of processes of deduction and logic to work out how these could have been made, most of them confound me completely. Well, there is a lot of skill and experience at work here. These pieces are by a young German who came to us on work experience some years ago and simply never left. Um, (laughs) His name is Jochen Ott, and he, perhaps it's his Germanic background, he does a very very skillful deep cutting of the glass with diamond wheels. How is that? How is that? Well, we we should say we've got uh, several rugby ball-shaped pieces of glass here, which wouldn't uh, strike me as being an impossible thing to learn how to make. But the the clever bit is that the central section of it, uh, a band around the centre, has been uh, cut into those deep grooves that you talk about. It's very precise. It is very deep. It looks uh, incredibly rubberized. Well, that's interesting. Yes, I can see what you're saying. I hadn't Again, I hadn't thought about that quality. I, what I'm attracted by is the way that the glass, because it has been matted, uh, glows. It actually glows. But I, I can see that, yes, that's an interesting comment you've just made about the rubber, rubber-like quality of the piece. It looks like, like gr- glass masquerading as a different material well, altogether. But that, that's a really interesting point you've made. I mean, that's certainly true of, gl- of clay, because you can make it look like anything... And to some extent, it's true of glass, too. I mean, here on this, on this side, uh, this is a very skilled young man. He's not here today, but he's called Elliot Walker. He's our latest um, addition to the studio. Only been blowing for about five years. They used to say in the industry it took 30 years to make a glass make. This boy is incredibly skilled, far more so than I ever was or have been or could be. Um, and here, he's now, his work has generally been about the figure, and he's hot sculpted, or he sculpted the molten glass into the most extraordinary figures. The piece on display here on a black polished block is a smoked white torso of a, of a human figure. It's a, a little bit Venus de Milo esque, incredibly detailed, exquisite. It, well, his work is... He is very skilled, and it is very beautiful. And then, funnily enough, there are... There, I mean, he is using an Italian technique of, of this hot sculpting is something that has gone on for centuries in, in Venice. But what's interesting is that, as a result of this theme, here's, a, here's his latest work, which is a series of still lives of which this is one where he's incorporated 
they're quite surreal really he's incorporated shells that have been brought from the depths of the ocean uh, nails rather uh, that have been brought from some sunken merchant ship and they've and vessels and they've been covered with his version of barnacles or shells and I think they're very very beautiful I mean in, in other cases he uses fruit and he he can make virtually anything. I'm just so impressive. Oh, this is the this is the same artist. There's a piece on a on a pedestal by the door. With medieval looking, still alive. So the dagger probably does relate to that medieval quality. He's cut up. He's made an apple. All of the, I mean, this craggy exterior, as opposed to the kind of thing I was talking about about shiny glass. Me graduating to shiny glass. He's going in the opposite direction. And he's using uh, the glass almost... He's, he's creating this sort of almost buried quality where the, the, the surface of the glass has been eroded away or corroded. It, al- it, it almost has a metallic feel to it. You'll have spotted it by now, listener, if you are listening on Acast, uh, that pictures of exactly what we're talking about will have been popping up at intervals. If you're not listening to Londonist Out Loud via Acast, then, well, this is a great episode to start on. Acast.com, find us, and you will find pictorial illustration of what's on display. Um, well, let's move on and talk about... I mean, these are more conventional. We've, so, got, some, we've uh, got some bowls they're beautiful, but here. They're, they, they're, they're slightly more conventional forms. They're functional. They're bowls. Very, very beautifully made. This is by an invited artist. He's actually the technician of the Royal College of Art, and his name is Liam Reeves. He's one of the people we've invited to join us. May, may I ask you, a, I want to ask a fairly on-the-nose question, yes, actually. We're looking at bowls. You, you mentioned that they are also uh, functional. Yes. With a price tag that's in the high hundreds, what is it that justifies the, the high price tag there? What, what is it that you're seeing in that item? Yes. Tricky question in this particular case, <laughs> maybe, because, you know, to the average in inverted commas punter I mean they look like bowls and you might find them in heels or somewhere like that Um, I suppose partly you're paying for Liam's name you know with with most artworks the name carries some value (laughs) part of the cost is the overhead here you know know, which is huge absolutely astronomic you know having a glass studio with furnaces running 24 hours a day 365 days a year in the middle of London is not is an expensive operation. Well, what are they powered by? Uh, well, the, the furnaces, the furnace and the glory hole, are gas, and the annealers are electric. They're like big pottery kilns, effectively. But I wanted to just point you over to um, uh, one of my colleagues who's working there, Lane Rowe. He's been with me a number of years. He went off to Brazil at one point try and start up there and then he had his own studio in Hertfordshire and then he came back and we we continued to work together but this is very complex work uh, very brave work in my opinion and with again quite an Italian 
influence or feel. We have stopped in front of a display of three objects, uh, very different from one another, all in the same style, though. In fact, the largest one vaguely resembles the gherkin uh, in some ways, but they in are... many ways actually, yes, both in shape and and. In... Yes, the, yeah. the, the stripes, uh, helter-skeltering uh, down it, it reminds me a little bit of a Fabergé egg, perhaps. They're very decorative, and there's a, a soft, multicoloured geometric pattern working through them, a little bit like an anemone. Actually, anemone is quite a good way of describing them. They actually have a beautiful texture, too. But these are so complex and so involved, and involve uh, having made the piece, then cutting putting it back on the blowing iron, reheating it in the, in the kiln, putting it back on the blowing iron and finishing it off back in the glory hole, reshaping uh, what we call fire polishing after, after the cutting process. A terribly brave thing to do when you've put that much time and effort into making a piece to, to stick it back into the hot furnace or the hot glory hole. I, it, it could easily shatter or crack if he doesn't get that absolutely right. Do you happen to know what Lane Rowe's uh, success rate has been in terms of getting an item through the complete process intact? Um, he's getting better at it. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting better at it, yes. I mean, there are, of, you know, that's another... You asked about why pieces cost what they cost. There are lots and lots of reasons. One is the overhead. Another is the sheer hours and hours and with the cut work the cold worked pieces like those polished pieces there many many hours perhaps even weeks of finishing on one piece and you're you're holding often a heavy piece against uh, a polishing wheel or a diamond wheel or a grinding wheel and uh, it's it's jolly hard work you mentioned your age and i wondered whether as time moves on, you find that the process of ageing offers you challenges in this line of work. Well, yes, I'm glad to say I've got a, a marvellous crew, a marvellous team who help me with my work, who help me to produce my work. That's part of the deal. And they get to use the facilities for their own work as well. And, of course, I, they get paid as well. Because it sounds very physically demanding for one thing. and the, the high t- All the pictures I've seen of glass blowers tend to have them in shorts and sweating profusely. It, it looks like it's a hard day's work. And it is, it is truly hard work. But it's very rewarding. I, you know, it's incredibly rewarding. And what I quite enjoy about working with the team is... Um, is their input you know it's uh, they, those pieces are my pieces they wouldn't be here if I hadn't inspired them or I hadn't asked for them or developed them but the fact that I didn't actually hold the blowpipe or, or nurture the form we've worked together most of the people who've worked here have worked here for a number of years they're all artists in their own right but, and, but we're all on a, on a wavelength and it's I, I enjoy the unforeseen. I enjoy the surprises. In fact, when the piece goes wrong, they begin to sh- shake with fear because they know that I'm going to get excited about that and they're going to think, how on earth are we ever going to reproduce that quality in the work? Uh, so there's room for kind of spontaneity within oh, a piece. hugely. That's ah. the thing about glass. It, you know, that's the magical thing about it. That I mean, of course, there are glass makers who work to a blueprint and they want to repeat a goblet, let's say a goblet, and, you know, they're selling them in sets and they want to make the same thing time and time and time again. 
we don't want to do that. That's not what we're about. We're about making unique individual pieces. Of course, you can't... Well, we can't when you're running a furnace with the kind of costs involved. You can't just make a one-off and not make any more in that series. It takes so long to develop a series that you have to get some mileage out of it. You have to capitalise on that in, to some extent. But I, I have a very low boredom threshold, so I never want to make the same thing twice. So the forms vary subtly, the colours vary subtly. The series are constantly evolving. It depends which side of bed you got out of or which way the wind's blowing. This series up here, this green series, is inspired by a Hockney painting. I was asked by the Royal Academy to choose a painting and to try to interpret it in, in glass and to make some... Now, a Hockney's painting, that's a painting that is as big as this wall. I mean, enormous. It was the biggest painting in the, in the exhibition, this wonderful show he had at the Royal Academy a year or two ago. Uh, and actually, it's ended up being probably one of our most successful series ever. When you have a successful series, do you find that uh, re- requests, do you, do you listen to those requests to go back and revisit that series and produce some more of, in, in a similar vein? That's, that's a very interesting question. I do, I do. And, and inevitably, if there's been a gap of a period, maybe years, from, I, I mean, I'd be working in black and white suddenly again. I've done, I, I had a whole period of several years of doing nothing but working in black and white in many, many different shapes and forms and effects. But... Um, it's, it's, it's something I've got back to through this latest Burano series, trying to create lace, this lace effect. Um, I did them in black and white first, before I did them in red and black, and now I've gone back to the black and white. So, and that's, they've, they've changed a lot in, in this process, and I'm, I'm enjoying it enormously. I mean, here we're standing in front of jewellery cabinets, and actually some of this has come from Venice, a friend of mine, and some of it is sea glass, which is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, I'm a beachcomber from way back. I've been beachcombing all my life, and I have never found bits of glass like this lady managed to find. Her name's Gillian Cowan, and she makes the most exquisite, delicate, subtle pieces of jewellery. And the light just catches yeah. them, and they, as with the previous pieces, they seem to, to glow. They've got that uh, matte fin- finish for the most part. They have, well, very much the feeling of, of the sea working on pebbles, you know, and uh, giving that sort of worn sea effect. But gorgeous colours. And, and it's with those colours, uh, regrettably, that we've got to start to come to a close. I, and we're, we're, I know up against the clock somewhat, you've got an appearance at the House of Lords this evening. Uh, I've been invited to a reception there this evening. There is a very good glass department at the University of Wolverhampton, and this reception is being organised by them. But I'm quite looking forward to it. I, I, I probably will meet some very old friends there. The glass world is a very small world. What's great about it is that it's still an undiscovered medium and it's growing. I mean, glasses, people are beginning to take notice of glass now in a way that they never have. I mean, the British public has tended to be much, as opposed, say, to the American or the Japanese, has tended to be much more interested in antique glass, um, 
or, or else it's been regarded as a kind of throwaway, a, a, you know, a medium, a, a throwaway, easily replaceable, you know, drinking glasses, um, functional wares. But, but people are now using it in extraordinarily expressive ways. And, and that's what's so exciting, to be part of that movement. If you needed, listener, to be persuaded of that argument, then the easiest way to do that is to get down here and take a look yourself. We haven't mentioned, for example, glass that's made to look like costumes on a dummy. Just exquisite work going on over there. And some beautiful, solid, strong, vaguely Germanic. In fact, I think glass blowing had, a, had some of its origins in Germany or Germania about 2,000 years ago. So I guess this is a, a neat follow through. There's lots to look at. You can see the glass being blown in the studio as well. A reminder, uh, Peter, of the address. It's London Glass Blowing. We're at 62 to 66 Bermondsey Street at London Bridge. It runs off Tooley Street right through to Bermondsey Market. It's very well worth a visit. The whole area is wonderful, as I've said, and I, I love being here. But there will, uh, listener, be no Vietnamese food for you, unfortunately, <laughs> so you'll have to weigh that up in your uh, considerations. Peter Layton, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for coming. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Peter Layton. Thanks, too, to Bernie Barclay theme and incidental music was by songs from the howling sea i'm in quentin wolf A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.